Passion Pod 93, and oh my goodness, do we have a Passion Pod for you this week. Wowza. So not only is the founder that we're chatting to, Andrew Hunt, unbelievably honest and raw about some really pretty personal stuff, which I personally find massively inspiring, all around mental health, which we just don't talk about enough. So not only is that pretty awesome, but also the product and the company that he has co-founded is just mind-boggling. You'll hear all about it, but there's a massively big social mission at the heart of what they're doing. The products that they're selling are pretty mind-blowing in themselves. Can you tell I'm overexcited about this? It is just quite extraordinary what goes on behind the creation of all these incredible adventures that everyone's on. The stories that make the products that we then see, you know, all the stuff you don't see when you buy off a shelf or, you know, you sign up to a service. I just love it. And Andrew's story is really quite the story. So just super honoured that he felt he could share some of the stuff he did. And also just can't wait for you to wrap your ears around it and find out a bit more about the stuff that they're creating. So enough from me. You're listening to Passion Pod 93 with Andrew Hunt from Aduna. So, Andrew, Aduna, if you're meeting someone, you know, they've arrived from another planet, tell me how you describe what it is. The most succinct we've managed to get it so far is that Aduna is, first of all, an Africa-inspired health and beauty brand and also a social business. That's pretty succinct. Yes. <laughs> Lots uh, of practice for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, uh, also there's the mission part of it, so why is it a social business? Do you want to tell um, us a bit more about that? Yeah, and this is a bit more of a mouthful, which is that at the heart of our business is a social mission, and that mission is to create demand for underutilised natural products from small producers in Africa. Again, lovely home. That sums up what the work is, is it? It does sum up what the work is. It's a bit, as I said, it's a bit of a mouthful, um, and you have to kind of unpack it to understand. Like, hang on, what is you know, what are you talking about? No, but... did you did it nice and slowly and gently for us <laughs> to take in all the words? But then you hang on, you know. But it, it, it does actually really make sense when you understand what it is that we're engaged in. Yeah. So we'll go on to talk more about that. I'm interested, though, what your background is. How do you come up with founding or co-founding something like this? So I started off in the advertising industry. Totally different. I spent three years working for a big ad agency in London and I was investing all my energy and creativity to promote products that I either didn't care about, like nasal decongestants. Oh, come on. It's what everyone cares about. Come on. A necessary evil (laughs) if if you've got a blocked up nose. But it doesn't really get the, the passion boiling over. Or all, all products that I actively dislike, such as frozen ready meals, and generally for clients who didn't appreciate what you were doing. So I ended up asking myself, what am I doing with my life? And that questioning led to an existential crisis, which is something which is, I think, increasingly common to us here in London uh, and other cities around the world. And the existential crisis actually led to, at the age of 25, becoming clinically depressed. And so quite the existential crisis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like beyond existential to yeah. actually... Life-consuming. Yes, and thinking about, you know, having suicidal thoughts Yikes. and looking on Google for ways to kill myself wow. and things like that. Um, and generally felt like I had no purpose and no worth. And anyone who'd met me before that, or who's met me since finds it hard to believe and nobody 
found it more hard to believe than myself. Yeah, so was it, if you don't mind me asking, was it something that you, you know, you'd experienced anything like that before, or had it come completely out of nowhere? It pretty much came out of nowhere. It kind of crept up on me over the course of six months or so, from a kind of feeling of anxiety that I was kind of subduing to an anxiety that kind of became a titled physical all-encompassing anxiety and um, having these intrusive thoughts 24 hours a day. God, how horrendous. Um, yeah, it's pretty awful. And, and I think I remember going to see my GP and he said that if you broke in your leg, you know, people would expect that it's going to take you six months or however long it's going to take to recover. But if you've got clinical depression, which is, it is an illness, people don't really understand that in the same way, but it is, it is an illness. Yeah, it's um, just of the mind rather than of the body per se. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it can be even a, a you know a chemical imbalance or um, something like that, as people don't really understand. But um, I spent six months in that way, thinking my life was over and desperately trying anything I could to get out of it, ranging from antidepressants to counselling to... Um, acupuncture just literally take yoga. anything yeah <laughs> give me what you got yeah exactly yeah. a bit like a, a footballer with a career-threatening injury you're kind of you're willing to try anything and even in my desperation went to see a, a faith healer in Brighton God, um, pulled it all in yeah great didn't make a blind bit of difference none of it um, until one day I got this random phone call from a family friend offering me the opportunity to volunteer my marketing skills to a project in the Gambia in West Africa and he said look if we would pay for your flight and put you up in accommodation would you be willing to spend six weeks helping us I don't think he knew the <laughs> the, uh, the condition that I was in and, yeah. and I wasn't interested because when you're depressed you're not interested in anything, anything. Yeah. least of all going to some godforsaken outpost in Africa and I had all this negative stuff in my head about Africa just from being a passive consumer of the media over here so you know corruption disease warfare but thankfully for me my friends and family put me on the plane and a couple of weeks later I arrived in the Gambia which is known as the smiling coast of Africa clinically depressed (laughs) (laughs) that was a wonderful image isn't it well it's the place to go obviously (laughs) yeah and it it turned out to be because the amazing thing is after just three weeks of arriving there I came back to life and instead of staying for the original six weeks I ended up staying for almost four years god that is an insane story that is insane just by being in that place wow yeah it's um yeah well, it makes me a bit emotional. extraordinary <laughs> event that happened yeah and it, um people often ask what, what what it was specifically that um you know made me feel better and it was a it's difficult to really say but it was a combination of things including the sun that comes up every day and just the sheer warmth of the people but also the work that i was doing which I'd never really done anything for anyone else in my life before that hadn't really crossed my mind. And in this role, and I was working with small-scale producers of fruits and vegetables, and I found I was able to be very useful and apply skills, which I didn't even realise that I had, to this enterprise. Because I remember my lowest point of my depression was sitting in my basement flat and looking around the room and seeing like the sofa the coffee table, the TV, the poster on the wall, and thinking, 
you know, the, the sofa is useful because you can sit on it. The, cu- the coffee table is useful because you can put things on it. The TV is useful because you can get entertained by it. And I'm the only thing in this room that doesn't have any oh, use Angie, that all. literally makes my heart hurt. <laughs> Bless your heart. Um, but then, you know, realising that I was useful and I could be useful and I could make a difference and not just a difference to sales of, you know, some pharmaceutical product or some frozen ready meal and, you know, making a company more wealthy that doesn't really make a difference to anyone's lives you know I could actually do something that really made a difference uh, and that just felt um, really really good so uh, I guess that's the kind of origins of the work that I'm doing now because I got really inspired by Africa by the, the sheer vibrancy and positivity and vitality of Africa uh, but also by combining entrepreneurship and business with development impact in rural Africa. So that's what I've carried on with. So take us then from that to the founding of Aduna. What happened in that little last bit of chunk of the story? How did this sort of part of it develop? In 2008, which was the year I came back to the UK, that enterprise in the Gambia won three international awards, including a a UN World Business and Development Award. Oh my gosh, how amazing. I came back to the UK and I went and did my MBA at Oxford because there they have the Skoll Centre for Social Entrepreneurship. Right. I learned that there was this thing called social entrepreneurship which I hadn't heard of before but I thought that sounds a bit like what we were doing in It's kind of the same kind of vibe. And there I kind of tooled up with because I'd never really been interested in business before but now I saw how business could really make a positive impact and I wanted to become fluent in business so that I could make more impact and after I finished my MBA I spent 18 months working on different entrepreneurial projects which combined commercial opportunity with social impact in rural Africa and one of those projects I worked on was the Baobab Fruit Company of Senegal and there I learned a lot about the Baobab Fruit and it was Shortly after I I finished working with them that I met my co-founder Nick who was also interested in the baobab fruit and doing something with it and we started brainstorming together and really Aduna is powered by what we call the inspiring possibility of baobab. Because it is just this thing that can do magical things. I'll just explain to you what I mean by the inspiring possibility of baobab. Please, great. So firstly, most people haven't heard of the word baobab. It's an absolutely wicked word, I love it. (laughs) It's such a joy to say. Yes, very round. Yeah. But most people have seen the Lion King and the baobab tree is that tree from the Lion King. So somewhere in our subconscious is this silhouette of a tree and it's known as the tree of life. And it's a prehistoric species that predates mankind and it's what's known as a succulent. So during the rainy season, it absorbs and stores water in its trunk, and then when everything else around it is dry and arid, that's when it flowers and fruits, which is why it's known as the tree of life. So it thrives in the driest and remotest and hence poorest regions of 32 different countries in rural Africa, and it produces this extraordinary nutrient dense fruit which has six times the vitamin c of an orange twice the calcium of milk six times the potassium of bananas it's almost 50 percent fiber 
and it has the highest antioxidant of any whole fruit. But I mean, that is just in one thing. That's quite, it's quite the CV. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, it's a truly extraordinary product. But what is most inspiring about it is that there is no such thing as a baobab plantation. So every single tree is family owned or community owned and wild harvested. And we estimate there's between eight to 10 million rural households who can supply this fruit from a crop that already exists and currently goes majority to waste. So National Geographic estimated if there was a global demand for baobab, that existing crop could be worth a billion dollars to rural Africa. God, but I mean, that's amazing. That's, yeah. yeah. The only problem is that 95% of people have never heard of it. So now hopefully that puts into context our mission because our mission is to actually create demand for underutilised natural products from small producers in Africa. Absolutely. And it shows you actually that the infrastructure really kind of is there in terms of the production. It's just working out how to manage it, I guess, from your point of view. It's the other side of things. That's exactly right. And during my time working in rural Africa, both in Gambia and other parts of Africa, um, I've witnessed firsthand the abject failure of the aid model for development in rural Africa. And just to kind of paint a, a brief picture of that, every year hundreds of millions of international funding go into these time-bound development projects usually three years five years seven years almost always to train thousands of women like to grow x y or z cash crop which some highly paid consultant has said is the next hot thing um so air-conditioned offices are set up pajeros are bought the women are provided with seeds inputs training often paid per diems to attend training sessions these huge productions are laid on But the most tragic thing is no one's actually thought of who is going to buy this stuff. Where is the market? And when the projects expire, there is no buyer. And the women have to uproot those crops and go back to their traditional subsistence activities and wait for the next aid project to come along. And hence the downward spiral of aid dependency continues. So at the very same time as all of that is happening... There's this amazing abundance of indigenous species that have got high potential, particularly within the health and beauty market. And it's known that more than 25% of the world's botanical species originate from Africa and less than 1% of what's on the shelf in the global health food industry, which is going to be worth a trillion dollars by 2017. So our thesis is that we can have more impact more sustainably by focusing on creating demand for what's already there for what's already there yeah. rather than investing all these hundreds of millions in producing stuff into low value cash crop markets or in some cases non-existent cash crop markets it's more sustainable it you know to be really base about it isn't it as well that's also an amazingly exciting part of it is there's you know something that it can continue rather than let's go in and jazz it all up and then just piss off you know, yes. I don't know the world, but, uh, you know, it's not my background, but it is a frustrating thing. <laughs> you summarised thing. it pretty well. Actually, <laughs> well, actually, yeah. you know, my big expert degrees. Um, but, you know, that's a very attractive thing as well, dare I say. It's more, you know, Western consumer that has that kind of mindset. It makes sense, you know, from how you're describing it on both parts. It's like, 
Well, of course this has to happen. I think it's a lot more appealing to the consumer. And I, th- I think what, what's difficult is persuading the funders because the international organisations and the, the foundations and the people who have got a lot of money to spend on supporting small producers in Africa are all set up to produce lots of stuff in Africa. It's very difficult to persuade them that actually what we should be spending money on is, for example, what Aduna is doing, which is um, a, a team of 10 people sitting in a, uh, you know, a nice office in Kennington doing PR and social media and marketing. But actually, that's how we're creating value and that's how we've, uh, we've seeded Baobab as a superfood in London in 2012 and thanks to the work that we've been doing it's now become a recognised superfood and we've got people like Waitrose and M&S making drinks with Baobab in it and of course if you start a health trend in London that's going to ripple around globally because London is one of you know two or three epicentres of global health trends so we've really made you know a major impact Um, we've done it on a pretty much on a shoestring and it would be great to access some of those big pools of funding because we can make a lot more impact than what we're doing today. Yeah, I mean, it's that, that it's interesting. The challenges is always the thing I'm interested in speaking about. I guess the main thing is obviously making people aware, whether it's the funders, whether it's the consumers, whether it's the producers. You've got quite the challenge on your hands on all the sort of prongs, it seems, in that sense. Would you say that's the biggest one? The biggest challenge in the work that we're doing is that we are explicitly focused on introducing new products that nobody's ever heard of into the London and global markets. And there are very few markets more competitive than London. And to actually register as even a kind of minor speck in the mind of a consumer here in London with all the messaging and all the campaigns that are going on every day is an enormous challenge. So introducing a new product into market is is a major challenge and it requires significant investment. So uh, I think the next challenge after that is getting the significant investment from the people that you would like to get it from because we have a lot of venture capital companies and institutional investors who would like to invest in a doona but they're not mission aligned because they would like to invest in us because they would like to make money out of us. And of course, we want to make money too, but we have a very long-term horizon and we have a social mission at the heart of our business. So we can really only accept investment from individuals or institutions who are aligned with our values and mission because otherwise we would jeopardise them. But so the first question that comes to mind is then how are you supporting yourselves? How do you guys run a business? If someone's listening to this and this is the kind of thing that they're, you know, really something that they're feeling very aligned with, what, how do you make that work financially in the stages that you've been up till now? Well, we are equity funded, so it's the same as really any other business would be financed, as in we, we sell shares. And you're uh, selling a product, I guess, as well. So, you know, you've got something... Yeah, we have um, increasing revenues, but we require creating a brand and creating demand for products that people haven't heard of in a very cluttered market and a very competitive market does cost money. 
there's no two ways around that. And we've been successful so far in raising money from friends, family, and also angel investors, particularly from a group called Clearly So, which is Clearly Social Angels. So these are individuals who are specifically looking for investments where, yes, they can get their money back and they can make returns, but also they can make their investment work for social impact. So they understand that we've got a longer time horizon. They understand that we're not in it to sell the business and get rich. And they understand that the impact is equally as important to us as making a profit. So, so far, so good. But um, we need more. Uh, <laughs> more of those people. More. Yes, and there are, there are social impact funds out there that we're talking to. I guess it's time, because like you say, it's the long game in terms of what you're doing and the mission that you have. So all of it just takes a bloody long time. And whether one can sort of make that sustainable... We, you know. we believe it or not, we have a 35-year plan that we've... <laughs> my God, I think I've even got a 35-minute plan for my <laughs> life. But that's impressive. I guess that's the whole point of what you're doing. Well, we're inspired by the potential for Baobab to provide sustainable incomes to 10 million households in rural Africa. And that's not something that can be achieved in two years, three years, five years, probably not even 10 years. And Baobab is just one of the products that we're looking at because we've got, we've already introduced a second one, Moringa, uh, and a third one, Super Cacao, and there are a whole range of others in the pipeline. So um, this is a very much a long-term project and yeah, we need a team and investors and partners who share a long-term view of things. It's so hard with this because I feel like there's so many things. I could talk to you for about three hours because we haven't even hardly talked about the stuff that you're actually doing on the ground and how you're implementing that. I'm interested how you're orchestrating that. You're saying you've got a big presence here and you're doing, obviously, the main focus is the push to bring the awareness. How does it work, you know, just in a nutshell, in terms of the, um, I don't know, what you call it, infrastructure of how you're implementing it in Africa? How does that work a bit? Sure. So, as you said, the... The first thing is that here in London, we're working to create the demand. And once we have created some demand and some traction, then we're able to aim it, um, to direct it to wherever we like, where we think that we can make the most impact. And in the case of Baobab, we work in northern Ghana, in the upper east region of northern Ghana, which is right on the border of Burkina Faso and is one of the driest, remotest, and again, poorest regions of West Africa. And we work in partnership with a local community organisation to harvest, collect, and then process the baobab fruit. So um, we're working now with about um, 700 uh, women who we source baobab from, and then a further 120 women who have employment in the processing centre. And just to give you an idea of the kind of impact we're talking about, these are subsistence level households. So what that means is that they survive off their land. So what they grow is what they eat. They don't really have any kind of income. In many cases, they have close to zero income. So the case of one lady who's in one of the cooperatives that we work with called Weniamo, last year, her total household income was the equivalent of £6. And 
that six pounds should have to last for what they call the hungry season, which is December through to June, which is when there's no rain and you can't grow anything. So normally you would grow as much as you can during the rainy season, hold stocks, and then if you run out of food, you have some small income that you can buy food. But as you can imagine, six pounds doesn't necessarily go the distance. This year, um, from selling the fruits of the two baobab trees that her family owns, she got £136. Oh my gosh, that's such a significant difference. Oh my gosh. It's a huge uplift. So we know that in her case, um, that meant that she could ensure that she can feed her family through the hungry season, number one. That's peace of mind. She won't have to go travelling to another town to be a market porter or to, to find work and leave her children there. Um, and number two, we know in her case that two of her children who weren't going to school are now going to school. And so it seems like a tiny amount of money, but actually the, the impact is huge. So there are 700 women that we're currently working with who are getting that sustainable income from harvesting their baobab. And um, we know that in, well, it's estimated by a local partner that there could be as many as 8,000 communities in northern Ghana who could participate if the demand was there. Just in northern Ghana? Just in northern Ghana alone. We're currently working with 13 communities, so there could be 8,000 communities who could participate. And I've already said the bigger number for sub-Saharan Africa is 8 to 10 million households. So we're really only scratching the surface of what's possible. So we have to think quite radically in terms of how we can scale up our activities. Can you believe this is your job? Like, seriously, can you believe it is your job? I don't know. I just can't believe that this is a job. (laughs) It must be so satisfying. It is satisfying at certain times. I don't really, I don't think of it as a job because, as you said earlier, you know, you can create the job that you want. So this is what I wanted to do. Um, So I've got something such a big, um, almost impossible target to aim for that it will most likely keep me busy for the rest of my life and probably keep others busy beyond my own life. Um, So that for me is good because I like to have a big challenge. But yeah, I guess the, the, the difficult thing is that I spend less time now in Africa than ever, you know, in the last 10 years. Now I spend less time because the business has to be run and the business is here in London and this year I haven't even had the chance to go out to Ghana and visit the villages so it feels while it is extremely satisfying um, and the reports we get back from local partner are great and we have had you know my co-founder and other parts other members of our team have been out to visit on a personal level for you yeah yeah it feels removed from the impact I don't have the same feeling that I did when I was in Gambia and I go out to the community and I I know them you know I knew them individually Mm. and had those personal relationships and could really see and feel the impact so I know the impact is happening and it's extremely motivating, but it feels a little bit removed being here in London. No, it's such a good point, and I guess that's the nature of it, isn't it? It's like when you do a passion-led thing, but then you're turning it into a business, it's such a key thing for people to be aware of, isn't it? Of like, I know it sounds base, but actually it does take you away from the source often. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't go back to it one day. It's, you know, but I guess that's what needs to happen. 
in, in terms of developing it as a business. Yeah, that's right. And I think also what I bring to Aduna probably is my experience working with small producers in Africa and also my experience working in advertising. And I'm a, I'm a creative brand person, basically. But when you start your own business, eventually, you know, it becomes management. So I'd say kind of 70% of my time in more recently has been on fundraising and HR and all the fun stuff (laughs) (laughs) like please I just want to go back and do the things I love doing yeah so this this is the reality and you know if you don't focus on those important things then the wheels could come off and you can't achieve your vision so I'm not complaining but it's not you know the pretty picture that people think it often is like I just said it's like oh it's so but it's like all the tin tacks the admin of it yeah, the ad, yeah, it comes with a huge amount of admin, basically. And I guess over time, as the business grows, it's great because we get to add new team members who can take over significant chunks of all of that. And I guess, you know, the objective is that one day... <laughs> He'll be back. <laughs> it's like, yeah. just hang on in there, just hold on tight. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a, long, it's a long-term project, but it's progress towards something extremely positive and meaningful and it's not just me who's motivated by that it's every member of our team is truly motivated by the mission and that means that people put in a lot more work a lot more inspiration and energy totally that creates a much higher chance of overall success yeah you've got that at your core like it's just winning formula if there's ever to be a winning formula you know you've got every chance with that at the base I kind of feel definitely and I think that's now a blueprint for business in the 21st century really and there's more and more people talking about purpose-led businesses and how purpose-led businesses can outperform profit-led businesses on purely commercial metrics why because you know you can just get a much better performance out of your people you can make your limited resources go a lot further when people are inspired by what you're doing oh god i mean it's like you know it just makes my heart sing that it's just surely this is what people should all be i'm like why isn't everyone working towards more sort of models like that but we um i've been at a number of conferences both as a speaker and just being in the audience recently and one of the themes i think in social business and africa related conferences right now is that you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem so <laughs> if you if you're thinking of starting a business then make it a business that's going to have a net positive impact either socially or environmentally because there are so many problems that we need to tackle globally that we don't need another business that is just doing something commercial or something consumer in fact you know if you do that you're really just part of the problem that someone else is going to have to solve so i think the the bigger opportunities the more inspiring opportunities now are businesses that yes you can have a really good commercial model and you can make money out of it but they are actually tackling a social or environmental problem that is going to add value beyond just the economics of it god here here i mean bring it on <laughs> it's like we keep churning that one out if i first let you feel um my love tell me advice what advice do you wish you'd been given when you were starting this out or even you know starting out your career journey I hate to sort of call it a career journey but you know what advice would have been handy well I think um, in my case I got really preoccupied and then ultimately depressed about the fact that 
at that particular point in my life I didn't know what my direction was or I wasn't doing the perfect thing that got the best out of all my talents but in retrospect I can see how all of the, the different roles and jobs that I did all contributed to what I'm doing now and my years spent in advertising particularly I couldn't be doing what I was doing now without it so I think um, I would say you know don't be too hard on yourself if you haven't found the absolute right thing right now but also on the other hand don't settle for something that is not ultimately right for you don't stay too long doing something that destroys your soul and then become dependent on the income to pay the mortgage because then you can you know get trapped in a day-to-day life that doesn't necessarily fulfill you so I think the risk that I've taken in quitting jobs and changing careers have ultimately for me paid off it was a bit of a circuitous route but I think you have to have faith that there is something that you can do that can be inspiring and feel like you want to get out of bed in the morning. I did warn you. I hate, I hate to say I told you so, but I kind of did tell you so. What a product and what honesty and what a story, <laughs> isn't it? Don't you think? A big fat thanks to Andrew and really, really hope you found that as inspiring as I did when I met him. I think I'm going to be sprinkling my Baobab powder just a little bit more liberally than I was before. Anyway, just another brilliant one to add to our collection, isn't it? Talking of which, if you go onto our website, there are loads more. If this is the first one you've listened to or you need another little bit of a dose of inspiration, go to passionpods.co.uk. We've got all sorts on there. Companies like Andrew's with more of a social conscience. We've also got textile designers. We've got actors. We've got builders. We've got, oh my gosh, hula hoopers. Like, Seriously, there's a whole range of stuff on there, so go and check it out. Or you can find us on Twitter at Passion Pods or on Facebook. By the way, as well, you might have seen on our Twitter this week, I also helped launch a new podcast run by the lovely lot at Enterprise Nation, The Small Business Sessions. If you like this kind of jazz, it's probably likely you're going to like that kind of jazz. Showcasing all the stories behind their members who are running businesses, small businesses in the UK. So definitely recommend you checking that out. We will be back with another sparkly new Passion Pod next week. Passion Pod 94 courtesy of an ex-rugby player who now makes sausages. Yeah, seriously, and he was quite a successful one as well. Find out more about that next week. Make sure you're subscribed to us on iTunes, and while you're there, ping us a review. We'll love you forever. I promise, seriously, we will. Have an amazing week, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 